Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Well, that old queen. A candid and adult take on queer life quandaries at a certain age. So please listen at your own discretion. Presented by Bernie and Tommy, the views here are purely those of the content providers and in no way reflect those of any service you may hear this program on. Now, please let your ears be upstanding for the <coughs> Old Queens. Hello, Tommy. Hello, Bernie. How are you? I'm all right. I'm a bit moist. Oh, yeah. It's hot in here. Yeah. I mean, last night was slightly unbearable because it was so hot. Um, How did you sleep? Um, not for, I couldn't get to sleep for ages. Um, but then, yeah, then I slept okay. I think I had kept having a reoccurring dream and I can't remember what it was, but it was just like, it was the same thing over and over and over again. Mm. I hate those dreams. How about you? How did you sleep? Oh, I slept fine, actually. Let, I got to bed later because I've been stuck in a um, rut of like watching the real life wives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> and I can't, I, I won't rest until I finish series season two which is quite frustrating because it's like not going anywhere and it's just not going anywhere very slowly, but I just want to get it out of the system. Right. And uh, well, we did, we did tarot readings live on Instagram uh, because I stood in for Miss Timberlina last night. And didn't we have someone from the real housewives of Beverly Hills look at us? Yeah. So there was a character called Cedric, who is like one of the main characters, Lisa's who's British um, like her gay best friend who she has a big fallout by the end of season one and um, he's a serious character and I followed him on Instagram and then obviously followed me and then he quickly joined in the live feed which I know. was very interesting he so, didn't yeah. didn't ask us any questions though did he no but I think it's only a matter of time <laughs> I want to know what happens. Like, where is he now? Yeah. I mean, maybe he wants to ask the tarot that question. Where am mm. I? Yeah. <laughs> I could call that with Lisa. <laughs> but didn't you just, didn't you start watching this program and then realise that it's about six years old anyway? 
Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like the, the fashions are really quite 90s. And I think actually those style, that style of very kind of bling, it does look quite 90s in a way. So I think it's, I think it's probably only about eight years old, but right. it, it does look quite dated. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the noughties did have a bit of a 90s hangover, like the 90s had an 80s hangover. Have you got your shoulder pads in tonight? I haven't. These are my natural shoulders. Um, I, well, I, I have noticed that your natural shoulders tonight. <laughs> anyway, what, what have we got this episode, Tommy? Um, so we've got um, Edson Burton joining us as our very special guest. And Edson is a, like... A local, I would call him a local celebrity. He does like a bit of everything, really. Um, historian, playwright, prince impersonator, um, wow. workshop leader. Yeah, he, he, he's, he, he is um, unstoppable. Yeah, wow. And he's, he's, he's been on the telly recently talking about um, the Colston statue uh, being thrown into the docks. And it's crazy how that story just went worldwide, didn't it? I know, Bristol is leading the revolution. <laughs> well, we have a long history of riots and revolution in this, <laughs> in this city, uh, and a long history of s- slavery, unfortunately, as well. Um, but hopefully we're, we're turning the tide on that one by throwing Colston in the river. And do we have a what, that really old queen as well? Yeah, so I... I just feel like, um, you know, I'm interested in uh, people from history and it just seems like there's endless of anyone that I could choose, really. I'm currently kind of in the middle of like about four different books of people because I love listening to audio books around biographies. Yeah. Um, and there's so many people that I could choose, but I just thought I fancied doing something a bit random. So I got this list on Google of like A to Z LGBTQ plus people um, and just picked like one out of the first A section. And this person is called Elvin Ailey and he's an influential, um, was an influential choreographer in America. Yes. And he's a dancer as well. So he's beautiful. Yeah, like he's beautiful. at any age, he is beautiful. Great. So, um, well, how did he start his career then? So he actually was born in thirties, um, in in America, and led quite a, like a life that he was always traveling around with his mother, quite like being constantly uprooted and involved in the spiritualist church. And as you see, the kind of work that he makes as his career develops that is a massive influence on the dance work that he creates he um started doing movement and dance work in um black clubs in the 1950s and he danced with maya angelou who is actually one of my favorite poets yeah um she writes the poet I know why uh, the poem I know why the caged bird sings which I just remember being so significant to me um, when I thought about black lives like, like when I was growing up um that was one of the poems that we read uh for my GCSE yeah and he danced with Maya Angelou wearing a, a leopard skin um g-string and she was in blue feathers which I quite like that idea <laughs> Maybe we could reenact that. Yeah, which one do you want to be? Well, I'm getting the distinct impression you want the feathers. 
<laughs> How could you tell that? I could just I could just see the glint in your eye. I want the blue <laughs> feathers. So I guess I'll have to have the leopard skin G string. Okay. Well I look forward to that incarnation. But when he creates his kind of most significant work is in New York, in the kind of cultural heart of New York and New York, he creates an all black dance troupe. And these, this is quite revolutionary at the time in um, in the late 50s and 60s um, because dancers were m- most often like skinny white people. And right. so to have these like strong black bodies was um, quite revolutionary for audiences back then. Yeah. There's a brilliant description of the movement being sleek bodies moved like mermaids across the stage bump and grinding it sounds amazing <laughs> yeah and his and his um so his mu- his movement that he created was like this fusion of styles so it came from like the spiritualist church yeah. um yeah so he was he was born in the in in south texas in the 1930s and led this kind of nomadic life and and within this period you know the civil rights movement became was was very much um rising up um, the piece that he's remembered for, um, I think, and I watched a brilliant documentary, and you can watch it on um, YouTube, is a beautiful dance piece called Revelation. Um, so it has the kind of um, themes of freedom and slavery and spiritualism. Uh, the movement itself is very lyrical and kind of sensual. Um one description of him, which I really like, was um, that he was the Earth Man. So he's kind of like a big man. That's, and this is one critic saying that he seemed to just grow out of the stage. Oh wow! And I just love that description of someone that kind of bought, be, be, being like being born to perform and being born to dance, and that they they felt so, you know, like the stage was actually the soil for them somehow yeah their natural habitat Mm. where they flourish exactly and i think he did Uh, Um, well obviously he won loads of accolades didn't he i did do a little bit of research on him yeah i mean it's interesting because i hadn't really heard of him i don't know that much about dance so it didn't Mm. really surprise me but um the the movement itself is beautiful um, so I highly recommend people watching. I didn't really find out that much about um, his private life. Um, I think that he struggled with his mental health. Um, there was sort of periods of heavy drinking. He did have a mental breakdown. Um, sadly, he, he died of AIDS-related illnesses um, in the 80s. Uh, but his legacy is through like the, those beautiful movements that continue now, and that dance yeah. company still continues and um, still continues to be um, influential. Um, well, I I loved this quote because there's a quote on his website, uh, which is alvinainley.com, and it's from the New York Times, who said of him, "You didn't need to have known him." personally to have been touched by his humanity enthusiasm and exuberance and his courageous stand for multiracial brotherhood i mean that's a pretty telling epitaph isn't it in many yeah, respects really, yeah 
when I was thinking about him as well, because I know you do so well with the Instagram um, and you always put up these lovely pictures of all the people that I choose. And I just thought that would be, um, it, well, it would it would be lovely to see all these beautiful images on Instagram of him. Yeah, well, instantly when, I, when you said you were going to do him, I had a little Google search and looked at some of the pictures and they just look beautiful because they're, I mean, he's, he's a beautiful man and he and a lot of them are uh, of him in action as a dancer so mm. yeah so where where did you say there was a um documentary on youtube about it i, I think it's actually on vimeo yeah oh, okay. on vimeo and it's, it's it's very much centered around the dance piece revelation right and you can see parts of the choreography on there oh amazing okay well maybe i'll put a, a link in the bio for that because i'd I haven't watched it, but I quite like to watch it. I like a bit of dance, you know. I've I've done a few dance classes. I can, yeah, I can, too. I can move a little bit. I'm not the greatest dancer, I have to say. I was always like the person at the end who's slightly out of sync with everybody else <laughs> on stage. Oh, I've got, yeah, I, I'm totally uncoordinated in that department. Yeah, but I I feel like if I'd done dance classes as a kid probably would have been way better at it you know well i did i mean did i you? was dancing yeah i did all the dance classes i did tap jazz um and then i ended up doing a degree that was in dance and theater oh, wow. i mean i quickly yeah i quickly stepped out from the dance classes um just because i'm, I'm totally uncoordinated um yeah, well you're not that uncoordinated i can't follow a routine <laughs> well neither can i but you know you fake it till you make it <laughs> i did do when i uh when i was doing my drama courses i did do a ballet class once because as part of the dance class and um i think the uh dance teacher was kind of pulling her hair out with me quite a few times i think she knew that i could probably move but i just wasn't getting it right but for some reason, we did this ballet class and I instantly did everything correct. And she was so shocked. She was like, how come you can do this? <laughs> you can't do anything else. So I kind of feel like I've missed my calling as a ballet dancer. I think you have. I mean, maybe I can, you know, rekindle this thing in my 50s. What do you reckon? Or is it too late? I, I think it's, I don't think it's very good for you like it looks beautiful but it's not very good for the body oh is it not you see yeah you see dancers like that that have worked hard in ballet their bodies are fucked by the time they're 35 or maybe i won't do that then i've got <laughs> dancers feet and they're ugly as fuck <laughs> i don't think your feet are ugly <laughs> i've seen your feet <laughs> i've got practically flat turnout apparently is that what they said in clark's <laughs> no it's what my dance teacher told me and i went oh is that a good thing and they went well maybe not in later life <laughs> so <laughs> i don't know what my practically flat turnout is gonna turn out to be uh hopefully nothing too serious um so how's the rest of your week been it's been like up and down i'm very aware that i've been on these podcasts moaning complaining you don't always um, and, moan and complain. I think you've only done one moan and complain that I remember. I don't. I don't want to be that person. 
Um, <laughs> and so I'm not being that person. And actually, I've had a really productive day. Um, I've got an sh- online show t- tomorrow, and so I'm getting ready for that. Oh, and yeah. It's shaping up quite nicely. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Annette Curtin. So when's the when's the next one after this? Because obviously this will go out after this one, won't it? So we can't really plug this well, one on this show. She's still in negotiation. So, um, yeah, we'll... Okay. That, that's yet seen, really. I think Annette's... She's awaiting government um, guidelines for live performances to see what happens, really. Of course, as we all are. And she likes a Saturday night slot. Um, but <laughs> Who maybe, doesn't? Yeah, but maybe as things progress, maybe Saturday night might not be the best night for her. Well, this is true. Is, is Annette quite difficult to work with, Tommy? There was a lot of wrangling with her contract because now we're working with the Bristol Arts Channel. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, she wanted top billing. She wants her own dressing room. You know, there was a lot of back and forth before the the, the, the signature was signed. And now it's going to be on Bristol Arts Channel. Is it going to be more highbrow? I mean, are we going to see ballet? Uh, Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, I'm pleased to hear that. Um. <laughs> but we do have dance. We do have dance in the next one, which will be obviously have happened by the time this podcast goes live. Uh, okay. All right. Well. Um, well, well, we can probably say what it is then, because it's not going to spoil the surprise, is it? No. So we've got uh, Josh and Rosie um, from Impermanence. They're combining their uh, both names to be um, Jerosie. Jerosie. No, um, no, Josie, Josie, Josh yeah. and Rosie, Josie. Okay, yeah. Is that what you call them as a collective couple? Uh, anyway, I don't really know. I mean, probably. Have you ever tried to combine our names together? Um, bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that works for us, doesn't it? I thought you said bong. I, no, I said bomb. <laughs> well, I am atomic. Or turny. Yeah, I like it. Uh, I mean, unless you can think of anything better. Bomb turny. So if, we, if, we if we become a celebrity couple, mm. that's what the kind of... That we were talking... We were, we were talking about this the other day, weren't we? Because I'm putting this out there as a challenge to... This morning, um, Pip Schofield. Who's the who's who's the Holly Willi- Holly Willoughby. Holly Holly Willoughby and um, Pip Schofield? We want to do a swap. Yeah. So we want to present Good Morning, and they can present what that old queen. So if anyone knows um, Pip or Holly, well, you, I think you know someone who knows Pip or Holly, don't you, Andy Peters? Oh yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, me and Andy, like it's a slow burner, but um, but yeah, that's mm. probably my next question. Yeah, we we need to. Uh, I mean, we need to cultivate this relationship. Holly has also got her own um, line in uh, bedding and duvets and etc. Oh, really? Um, okay. And I'm yeah, I'm, I'm interested in doing something similar. Um, with. Sort of, I could design it with kind of like cum stains in mind. 
like a pattern that would kind of absorb them so they wouldn't what, stick out. Like camouflage them. Mm. Camouflage. Come camouflage. <laughs> <laughs> I like this idea. <laughs> Anyway, we're going to wait for Edson to join. So shall we have a little break? And then hopefully he'll be here by the time we um, we come back. Yes, I, I might replenish my glass. Okay, replenish your glass and we will be back after this. If you're enjoying What That Old Queen, please share our episodes on social media and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen on. If you can write a review, that would also help expand our audience too. We don't have any advertising or sponsorship, so if you can contribute to our Patreon account or help us by buying some merch, the links are in the episode description below or on our website, thatoldqueen.com. Thank you for your continued support. Right, so we're back. And we have a special guest. Tommy, would you like to introduce our special guest? I'd love to introduce our special guest. So uh, i to have Edson Burton with us today. Um, Edson is a historian, a playwright, a performer, a workshop leader, a film curator, a prince impersonator. <laughs> That's what I'm interested in. I want to hear yeah, about the prince impersonation. Um, and Edson has been on the TV recently, and I had to text my mum to say my friend's on the TV talking um, very eloquently about um, the removal of the Colston statue um, in Bristol. Yeah. So we want to talk to you about so many things, Edson. Mm. Yeah. So, hello, Edson. Welcome. Hello. How are you both? How's we're, everyone? We're good. We're good. I'm so, I'm really hot this evening, so I'm, I'm melting a little bit in in my kitchen um, where I record. So have you got, have you, have you got a, have you got a drink, Edson? Um, I haven't, but I can make myself one. Make yourself a drink. I think it, you know. Kick your shoes off. <laughs> I can see I can see a mug tree from where I'm sat. Yeah, me too. My mug tree. Yeah. Oh gosh, this is the thing about uh, being recorded visually that it's actually compelled my housemate and I to tidy up the house because we were sick of people looking at this horrible mushroom colour on our walls. Also, we put some samples up as to what we were going to eventually choose. So, of course, not only have you got a horrible colour, but you've got strange streaks on the wall. And they think that we're having some kind of alternative party. Um, so, yeah, it galvanised the kind of vanity of Zoom. Well, it's nice that you've made an effort with your shirt. Yeah, it's very oh, colourful. Yes, I've got this African print shirt on, um, which I got actually from a shop in town. But they assure me it's been ethically sourced and all that. Oh, lovely got to take their word for it haven't you really yeah um do you want to mention the shop sorry do you want to mention which shop it was tk max <laughs> no it's um it's a oh god Primark. it's 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 not Poundland, thanks Primark, i said oh sorry <laughs> i can't remember um it's a vintage type shop on the Re- beyond retro beyond retro that's it oh yeah. 
Yep, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love that name because it's like, I feel like I want to say, no, sorry, that shirt is just Beyond Retro. <laughs> and I think they probably call it Beyond Retro because I think they reconditioned some of the clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I went into town today and I could not believe the queues for ATK Max, but the one for Primark was ridiculous, like around the block. Really? Yeah, it was crazy. I was really? like, I mean, how much do you need to go into that shop? I don't really understand it myself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't queue for Primark. I'm sorry. I think it's the uh, the heat wave and the sense that maybe people will go on holiday. And yeah. if they go on holiday, oh, and I think that somebody, I haven't popped in, um, but I think they're probably going to try and flog as much of their summer wear as possible mm. in the anticipation that uh, they've got a short selling season before they go into autumn, uh, whatever the autumn range is. Yeah. So there might be bargains inside Primark. <laughs> I mean, how, how much cheaper can it be? <laughs> I know. Well, <laughs> it does make you wonder. Doesn't it? And that's definitely not ethically sourced, is it? Um... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. They, they they claim now to have, I suppose they've had so many conversations with uh, Stacey. How serious can we be on the show? Is it a, are you light or are you heavy? We're, we're, we can light. be heavy light. Heavy light. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting when we sort of look at the history of human exploitation. Um, because you could say that decades or centuries ago, we had less information, less knowledge um, about what was happening in other countries. You know, you could say that during the transatlantic slave trade, there are British people outside of ports who might just have some kind of cloudy idea of how sugar was being processed. I think, I guess, we don't have that excuse mm, no. around, um, yeah, how our goods are made. And because Stacey Dooley's gone everywhere and she's gone to every factory. So we're quite well aware that people are being paid um, literally nothing. Yeah. You can't shop on the high street in those cheap stores and still be really believe that black lives matter there is a thing about making sense of yeah bringing it up to i think what you've got is uh, various different kinds of activist energies that have been around for the years but the dots haven't been joined up mm, yeah and if you join the, the dots up you would say that actually what is slavery but a system of absolute exploitation it's about getting the maximum work for as little as possible. So it isn't about something historical. It's a system that could be reproduced tomorrow and just morphed like it did in the States. It went from chains and no pay to low pay and debt bondage. And then you go from debt bondage to low pay, maximal exploitation. So it isn't, it has, it became racialized, but it was never actually about one set of people. It's about the maximum exploitation same thing with immigration you can't kind of not be interested in how our immigration functions and um and also be involved in black lives matter because these all things connect up i say one can't but i guess it's about joining up the dots you know you enter a door through one way and then you, i guess to make sense of the whole thing you realize it all joins up yeah totally. and, um, when i was doing the list of you i I actually missed out poet and it suddenly occurred to me because everything that comes out of your mouth feels a bit like a poem. 
Like the way you speak is quite lyrical. Thank you. Um, Even if you're just talking about Primer. <laughs> I think I was once told that you've got an opinion about everything. Shut up. <laughs> I, I think that's a good thing. I think it's, it's good to have an opinion about stuff. So you've been, you've been on the telly because obviously the Colston statue has gone worldwide. The fact that it was yeah. toppled and put into the docks in Bristol. Um, what were they asking you? I mean, what, what's your take on that? Um, gosh, I mean, to be totally honest, I had been around various conversations around Colston, transatlantic slave trade, um, for almost as long as I've been in Bristol. And uh, I've... I always thought it's good to keep things on the landscape so that you kind of know how you got here, yeah. where you've got to. And I would have been thinking about contextualization, like trying to put a plaque on it. And a good friend of mine, she was involved in trying to get a plaque that would reflect his whole story, but mm. met some resistance. So that's why there wasn't one. My other thought is that if the money was available, because a lot of this stuff, these public sculptures are paid from the public purse or paid privately um, when England was awash with money. But I would have liked to have seen new icons of the city so that when you went around the city and you go, oh, that was 1895, weren't there a bunch of tossers celebrating this old slave trade? And then you go to 2020 and you've got a whole different set of sculptures celebrating people are normally invisible, you know, LGBT, uh, people of colour. Um, or even just women. I mean, there's yeah. yeah. so few statues of women. Yeah, I was going to say. You I know, mean, it's, it's Queen it's, Victoria um, or nothing in Bristol, isn't it? Um, I think what it, it's... So, in a sense, what I kind of feel, the, big, the biggest flip is to um, create an interest in ordinary life. Lives. Yeah. I feel that I, I grew up in a curriculum that was geared to what the the elites were doing. So this is what the king did. This is what the queen did. And you think, well, who's what's what's the life of the peasant who just suddenly has their taxes raised a hundred percent? You know, um, what's the life of women in that period? What's the life of? So it's really about the kind of taking the, the heritage history, which I think is in some ways being less about us less about ordinary lives um, and heroicism within it. And it's really been about the life of elites. And um, maybe to do something without its kind of communist overtones, but which I think they tried to do in Soviet Russia, kind of make it about the people. Mm. And, you know, I use that illusion without kind of <laughs> meaning to, you know, celebrate. I only wrote one question down for you on my post-it note. Right. Which it feels like, we're sort of talking about was we're talking around it now is like do you think that there's too much emphasis placed on statues and symbols that disguise that sort of take away from what the what the main issues are so i think with any movement there are lots of different energies within black lives matter and there's generational activism there's activism that comes from within and outside universities I think the decolonization argument, statue busting, has been something quite prominent in some activist circles, but it's not been a priority among all. So what you're kind of seeing, I think, with the statue emphasis is a difference of priority, but also of geography. 
I mean, in the US, which is quite different from our context, you know, you've got, if you're a, a, a black person living in the South and there's a statue of a slaveholder and a, 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 the, a Confederate soldier who's honored, then there's something I think very immediate and visceral about that person occupying the space. Not just because they're about history, but because of everything that happened afterwards, the terrorism, the Ku Klux Klan, and the official figures. Mm. Um, I think with, in terms of British um, sculptural art on our landscape, I think the relationship in some ways is a bit more complex. Um, if you think of Oxford, then actually this Cecil Rhodes and what he meant, especially from students coming from East Africa, it's quite extraordinary to, to have this man on, on their landscape. It's a very complex issue, that one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I can totally respect where that energy is coming from, but I think underneath it is an attempt to create a conversation. So we've got to be careful we don't get caught up in the Instagrammable spectacularness of it. Mm. And it's the conversation is like, what is the story of what it is to be British? What is the story of, of to be part of this country? And, and the narrative has changed. And I, I guess in some ways it feels a bit like the heritage we've had isn't fit for purpose anymore. Mm. Um, <clears throat> that we've departed so radically from what Britain was in um, its vision or articulation of itself, 1950s that we kind of need to shift the gear and um, we can't. And I think that's one of the problems with, of having conservatives. And I mean that small C and big C in terms of holding our education system and also our heritage system to an extent, you know, there's some um, freedom there and some not, but that shift around making sense of what it is to be British now has been held back. And it isn't just about what it means to be British now, it's about so many voices that were silenced. You don't fit the national discourse. It's saying, actually, we do. And so when we tell the national story, we want it to have all these stories. We want it. It isn't revisionism that we're making up fictions. The fiction was the exclusion. So what we had before was storytelling around and his, you know, his eight wives, except for the, the politics of gender that that reveals. It's not a sexy story, you know. Um, so it, it's, if, ever, if so much of what it is to be part of a polity, what it is to be part of a country, what it is to imagine oneself as, as integral to the nation and building its life and its sense of self, so much of that has been left out. So Black Lives Matter is the tip of an iceberg, and that's what's painful when people say, oh, they're trying to get rid of our history or they're trying to um, destroy us or, you know, white lives versus black lives. And so actually, this is a catalyst for something which actually would integrate so many stories. How many people know about the toll puddle? Peter Lou. You know, you've got white working class. People are interested in the stories of... British working class, um, who are trying to do this work in film as well as saying, well, actually, never mind people sending you off to war. These are the, these are the struggles, these are the heroes that were trying to actually create some dignity and space for people who are working class as well. Yeah. So it's, I, I think it's, 
So that's the thing with the statues. It's kind of like, look, yes, but when you've opened up the space, it's like smashing open a ground and there's this huge crater and it's what you're going to fill it with. That's the start now. You've got a ball scorched earth and what's going to grow on top. And what grows on top is going to be a discussion. It's going to be, it, it's never going to be the imposition of one thing out the other. Um, you know, and, I, I'm, and in that context, I think there is a feeling that we need to and shift. But the change is for everyone. The change is for, you know, for women, for cutie pock, LGBT, uh, so much of life in Britain, so many lives have been excluded. Mm. Um, how can we, you know, where do I begin with the names of people that, you know, have got, given so much to the, to the nation and been discarded, left out, been silenced? And I think, like, I think you're right in that sense is that it feels so, um, that, that people just want a very sort of simple uh, narrative because we, we spend so much time on social media yeah. That, that, that there is this like just you know an instagram sensation like you said it feels like that um that that's what we really need yeah to, to have a simple discussion around something the reality is it's much more nuanced it is and but i and i think that nuance is graspable it doesn't it shouldn't be left to academics and people in specialists one of the great things about this time is the diet is the just the plurality of people who are interested mm. i think what we need and it's interesting why akala and remy lodge are being cited it's uh, in a disrespect to them but a lot of that work has been written before but what they're great at is translating some of the stuff which has just been in academic or race relations or interested yeah. circles We've into been wider videos in my place of work yeah which is like, and that's part of our work to watch them. Yeah. And so I am, um, but I, I think, that, so the access is, accessibility of conversation is great, but I think how do we renew, so like Instagram and Facebook and whatever, and what they do, because the algorithms I think is create this really extreme um, distortion of conversation. And, also kind of creates bubbles of thought. Mm. So what was kind of, what's kind of weird is that, you know, when you had the, the white, the right wing March in London, and also we had the Leicester gathering in Bristol, but they are hearing those conspiracy theories. There was even a completely fake report of a, a white guy being stabbed by one of the black lives matter protesters in London. And it was made up. Yeah. So if you rely on social media for your content, what it's making even it's even difficult it's very difficult in physical life because we uh geographically divides what's a safe space to meet somebody who's really different from you but online just makes it worse and you know you know my thinking is that we would have small people-led discussions and forums to kind of try and find some ways of communicating communicating the complexity of things and the nuance of stuff you know it's like no one's trying to erase you know everything but it is about why are some people really pissed off i think it's important for you to kind of understand and why are they holding on to stuff so much it's because actually that's been part of their heritage for so many years and making sense of 
it's like if somebody told you that a beloved relative or friend was actually abusive and you go like, Oh, sugar, you become defensive denial. And then you kind of, how do you square that with them being lovely mm. to me or leaving this behind? It's like, you know, if, or people clinging on to stuff because it's their it's their kind of their birth story, their origin. Yeah, their identity. Yeah. yeah, it's their identity, I think. But there's something we attach to great people, and I put that in quotes, right? Because I think quite often what that's really about is not us us not accepting our own potential for greatness. Uh, great moments, we could be crap for most of the time, and there's one moment where we just do something quite amazing. I think that's one thing about getting against the sort of heroic narrative crap people can do heroic things and heroic people can do crap things. Um, but one of the things that's, I think, kind of crucial is you have this thing of rootedness and about your idea of a heritage and just using this metaphor of great figures as being part of your idea of your consciousness, your roots and stuff. But we attach a nobility to heroism. Um, like if someone's really beautiful, we think they're, they're kind. We think they're nice which is really weird. I'm like, they just were born good looking, whatever that means, right? It's like, what is that? How does that value their ethics? And um, so there's a, a sense that it isn't just about the identity, but it's also about how we, um, what we attach to, to great figures, how we deal with human complexity. And really all we're saying is that how do we deal with the complexity of ourselves, right? So we're sort of outsourcing our own sense of our complexity. We know in our internal spaces the crap stuff we think, the, the cowardice we have. You go, right, yeah, that was, I, I surprised myself. But yet we, we then it's to have a childlike view of these um, national figures that we cling to or not and either get disappointed when we find that they have affairs, like, you know, like Luther King. Or we find out that you know, Winston Churchill, war leader, but also racist, and mm. and uh, actually, yeah, the miners talk about how he turned troops on the miners. Talked about his response to the suffragettes. So squaring these things, and that's the thing. And it's like pulling history. We kind of have to come to a place which isn't, which is around the complexity of history and being grown up mm. uh, as a national heritage story as opposed to it's got to be one thing or the other, goodies and baddies, because, yeah. you know, it isn't. Well, no, well I'm going to bring this conversation back to you, Edson, and ask you what you've been up to during lockdown. Tom, you've got some idea of what I've been up to in lockdown. Well, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll say that because I'm really enjoying your Instagram. <laughs> you know, you've, been, you've been working that gorgeous body. Um, you've been... You, I feel like you're getting much fitter than you were. Is that true to say? I, I, I think that's become evident. Yes, it has become. Um, um, what he means is I've become leaner. <laughs> okay. I and stronger. Of, and you're like from, shifting these big tires around and stuff. Oh, the, the tires are probably, you know, the irony is. So, okay. So what have I been doing in lockdown? I'll start with the Instagram stuff. Um, I kind of like thought to myself, how do I stay sane and in a place of good well-being, mental, physical, and so on? So I kind of thought like I do like people. I also like a bit of time to write and quiet. Admitted to going on a socially distanced walk at least once a day. So circle of friends who live locally 
and in a similar situation, either one housemate, blah, blah, blah. And I also thought, I want to keep fit. So the gym's all closed. And I, I'm, then I kind of thought about, well, you know, when I was younger, I used to do, went into the garden. My housemate's normally responsible for the garden. He points at things and goes, oh, that's a cherry. And I go, really? It looks kind of dull and green. Oh, it will blossom into a cherry. Wow. So I discovered the garden that I'd been, um, that, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd been paying for for 18 months, discovered it this year during COVID, and discovered that we had logs. Logs, right, we have a fire. But who wants to start a fire with the logs? I lift them instead. <laughs> and I basically started to put together um, routines based on what was available and body weight exercises and just using stuff like I've got a keg, uh, which is empty, so I'm using that to lift, and then the logs and stuff. And then I've um, got an exercise buddy, and we go to Eastville Park, and uh, we just uh, push ourselves really hard with combinations of body weight type stuff. And the, the, the tire was a fantasy. And then I've got a friend who's very uh, sort of let's do it type thing. And we, I was at her allotment and she said, oh, well, there's a place just across the road where I think they sell, they sell tires. And we went there and found this great big truck tire that was just lying in the grass in this whole wreck yard. And they said, oh, have them. So I, I, took, uh, I took two. I took one for my friend and one for me. So we have a tire each. Uh, and so we've been doing some tire flipping as well. And I, I think, to be honest, I, um, uh, I think sometimes when you're known for, you know, writing and academ- academia and blah, blah, there is a sense that your friends who know you, and Tom, you've, you've known me, and, and I think, Ben, you're starting to know me, but... Um, <laughs> you kind of uh, have a, a broader or a more plural life. Um, you know, you just follow the things that you like doing. For some people, they, they kind of struggle with that. You know, they think, oh, well, you should be wearing tweed and glasses and always have a book underneath his arm. My gosh, what's he doing? He's dancing in spandex. Oh, I'm weirded out. Ah! That kind of stuff. And I just thought, I don't give a crap. Um, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to stay sane. And actually, I'm going I'm to use Instagram to have fun. So that's what I've been doing. And also, I like I write uh, long form quite a lot. So th- uh, drama. Uh, sorry, I say drama. Yeah, drama. I guess for theatre and radio. I've just finished my radio play, which is going to be recorded on Monday. Wow. What's and, what's the radio play called? Oh, it's called Deacon. So it's the third outing for our character for this character. Right. Who's played by Don Warrington? Does anyone remember Rising Damp? Yes. Yes. Right. Because so, I'm I'm often compared to um, what's the name? Something da da da. Oh, uh, Frances Delatour. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, her character was fantastic. Yeah, I think you are a bit Frances Delatour. You know, <laughs> I I think that series was so ahead of its time. I loved it. Yeah. Because the joke was always on Rigsby. Totally. Yeah, and, and Don Warrington's character was, um, yeah, sending him up using these exotic ideas of, you know, the black man with a spear and, you know, voodoo spells. And Rigsby would be like, practicing the spells <laughs> and we'll be sending him up. I loved it. But Don Warrington is the lead actor. And, um, yeah, so it's the third outing for Deacon. Um, and he's a, ah, he's been cursed kind of cursed with immortality. I've heard uh, one on the radio. Radio 4, was it? Radio 4, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
afternoon drama. I uh, can't remember what the broadcast date is. I didn't even know it was you. And then I was, I, you know, often have Radio 4 in the background all the time. And then I was like intrigued by this one. And then it said, oh, it's written by Edson Burton. Yeah. I mean, like, I do, oh, gosh, it's the, the irony and the, the comfort of radio that I, I do believe in the whole death of the author thing. You know, when people are really interested in what the author wrote for, I don't know, what they had for breakfast or what happened in their childhood. I'm like, whatever. And um, the great thing about radio is that, you know, you can have a, an afternoon audience of a million people and nobody knows what you look like or what you do, and what you have for breakfast. And, um, and, you know, and I think that's great. Although, of course, a bit of, um, I don't know, maybe if they were throwing money at me in the public, that'd be quite good. But um, <laughs> the fact is they just enjoy the drama and, and they don't need to... Um, worry about anything else because that's ultimately the thing I think different from poetry which I guess does have more elements of autobiography autobiography but I think people get stuck on they forget that it's a craft so you may have the germ of an idea which is autobiographical and then you you mash that up with uh, stories of people you know and other stuff and maybe the 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 truest autobiographical element is what can draws you to one set of stories or one life than another, but not the detail. I think the idea that um, you could research someone's life in order to explicitly make sense of what inspired them to write a thing, I find that a little bit reductive, and it kind of uh, denies the kind of galaxy, the internal galaxy that creatives have. You know, you start one place, and some stuff is more autobiographical, and you're just not hiding very much stuff that's happened. But sometimes it really is. It's just like what are that? Um, all people you know and you have revenge on joke. And <laughs> are you telling us you're immortal? Is that is the, is that the autobiographical part of this story? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, gosh, what can I say? I mean, um, I mean, Edson is forever youthful. I would say. Yeah. Cocoa butter. Well, we're uh, well, we're going to have some more drama in a minute because we're going to go into the Queens of Agony section, which Edson, you're going to join us for. Thank you. Sure. Um, but. Before we do, I want to know about the Prince impersonation, please. Where, did, How, where, what, when did this come about? First album I... Uh, okay, first album I ever brought was Prince. Uh, I didn't buy any other music than, than Prince for years. And uh, also I was... I thought I was shy until university. And uh, I, it was pointed out to me that I wasn't very shy at all. <laughs> and Covers Night... Because one of those things you do when you only just buy one musician, I guess, is that, you know, all the songs back to back from every album. And then in about, oh, gosh, uh, years ago, at a, a Caribbean restaurant called Plantation, we did a Prince Covers gig. And then with Claire Lowe and Wig in a Box and Kiki, we did a collaboration and um, we hosted a Prince night then. But I didn't, oh. But and you wore my leggings. I wore your no, well, they, they were not your leggings. They were like leggings like yours. They weren't. <laughs> no, your I leggings. lent you my leggings. Did you? You did. You did, didn't you? Those pink spark, those purple sparkly leggings were mine. Oh yeah, you did. Oh, sorry. How ungrateful. Oh yeah. Um. I also. <laughs> I um. <laughs> no, I. Sorry. Can I just? I've got to mention this one. So we did um. Uh, Black Star film season. The BFI. And I, it was the year that Prince died, and we screened Purple Rain in Colston Hall. No, that's when I lent you the leggings. That's right, that's when yeah. you lent me the yes. And it was absolutely, honestly, as a Prince fan, I could have died and gone to heaven. There was a stage invasion after 
the end of Purple Step, Purple Rain. Security guards just, you know, literally they just dropped their dropped their hands and said, "Forget my, it." And people would have dressed. Is Elmer's obsessed with Prince. She's just completely obsessed with her him. And what she, what's what the she, favorite song? I don't know what her favorite song is. No, mm. but she went to that night, and I was just oh. like, "Yeah, she had a great time." Can I do a little rendition? Yes, please do. Yeah, I guess I should have known. By the way you parked your car outside, baby, this won't gonna last. So you're the kind of leaves making out once, love them and leave them fast. I guess I must be done. She had a pocket full of horses, Trojans, some of them used. But it was Saturday night, I guess I'll mix it all right. And you said, baby, what have I got to lose? Honey, I said, little red Corvette. Baby, you're much too fast. I was going to do Prince, but I thought I'll, I'll kiss. But I, I thought I'd just... I'd, <laughs> I'd I thought you were going to do Let's Go Crazy. That's one of my favourites. Um, oh. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you, uh, Edson. <laughs> I nearly joined in, but I just thought, no, I'll give him the limelight. Um, but um, shall we do some Queens of Agony question after that beautiful rendition? Um, yeah. Yeah, we ready? I'm going to do a big gong. Right. I thought you. It's so funny. It looked like you were getting your titty out then, Tom. But I, I realised you didn't have to. <laughs> no, I'll do it tonight, tomorrow night. Okay, great. Um, so here we go, dear old queens. What is a bad trait that you've adopted from your parents? The time I've had with this pandemic made me realise a lot of things. One of them are my problematic traits and where they root from. I get irritated over people who find it hard to figure out things that I sometimes get irritated with my boyfriend when he needs my help. I now acknowledge this more than ever and have apologised to him more than once. I'm now doing my best to be more patient for my own good and for the good of everyone around me. I'm just wondering if you also had similar realisations. So, bad traits from your parents... That's a deep one. I know. I mean, the first thing that came to mind was when when I used to, my mum used to, she used to say, I'm vacuuming the house from top to bottom. And she'd go upstairs, turn the vacuum on, sit on the vacuum cleaner and have a fag. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't really do it when you live on your own because you're only fooling yourself. But... I understand that sensibility. I did it today. I needed to do the hoovering, but I just sat on it and had a fag. So, um, Edson, any any bad traits from your parents? Not oh, to go gosh, too deep, you know. I mean, <laughs> let's let's keep it trivial. Yeah. Ooh. Well, that would be that poem. They fuck you I mean, up, your mum and dad. Sorry. They fuck you up, your mum, your mum and dad. Who wrote that poem? Oh, Philip Larkin. Yeah, they kind of do, but I think the truth is that we fuck them up as well. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I mean, some of the things that my friends have to put up with with their kids. And I think your kids fuck you up. They they can really fuck you up. I'm really blessed. But I mean, gosh, imagine that you're uh, a, a parent who's just about ready for Tinder life again. And then your 16 or 18 year old decides that they want to move back in. Or they're having incredible emotional crises. And their behavior is kind of like nothing. It's completely alien. It's, it's like, where did this come from? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it goes both ways. 
Um, my, my thing is, I um, yeah, everything will somehow be useful at some point in time. So that shirt, which is, hasn't got any sleeve, that could be good for a party where I'm playing a zombie. Or uh, that, you know, that broken stereo, which I haven't used forever. Well, I know John, who lives in Devon, who I've seen once this year, and maybe if I see him again and I get a lift down to Devon, I could bring him the broken stereo. But I've already got four. <laughs> well, this could be good to just repair this one, right? So, um, Edson, yeah. I'm exactly the same. I mean, my my mum's house before she moved into her home, I had to sort it out, and it was like an episode of Hoarders Buried Alive. There was literally <laughs> everything, and I I'm not that bad yet, but I do recognise it in myself that I I do still have a lot of stuff, and I don't need it. <laughs> I should just get rid. Yeah, yeah. I, I find moving houses really good for me because then I, I have to get ruthless. But I have to say that what broke my heart is the start of a place about five years ago. And we had to be out that evening, that night. And it meant leaving all 51 copies of Bizarre Magazine behind. I had a perfect set of Bizarre Magazine, which was before the internet had taken off in terms of the weird and wonderful, was your repository of strange sex facts, um, weird photo, photos of circus style. It was really just incorrect in every possible way. Um, but it was a whole collection, and I had to leave it behind, along with lots of uh, muscular development magazines and some vinyl and yeah it was great you know i cleared out some stuff but i wish i'd kept the vinyl and i still occasionally want to look at really strange sex facts that i don't know anything about and i don't have my library anymore well i mean well, you should listen to this podcast more often yeah you should listen yeah. to our podcast we we have uh, weird and wonderful sex fact and kinky acts pretty much every week not this week <laughs> but um yeah we've delved into it a lot so um, yeah, maybe listen to our back catalogue. All right, should we? Do, uh, should we do? I'm glad that that listener has recognised some of the bad traits from his parents, and he's trying to address it. wasn't really a question though. So let's let's move on to some. Let's get our teeth into some issues here, shall we? So, uh, dear old queens, what do you do when an ex texts you out of the blue? I miss you. I imagine there's been a lot of this during lockdown. The last time this happened, I ended up back involved with him for, for several months. I'm fairly confident after two goes, we do not work. <laughs> as much as I like him, and I thought we were on the same page on that fact. I'm scared to text him back, but I don't want to be an asshole. But I also don't want to give him the wrong idea. He probably just misses the idea of me anyway, right? The last split was his idea, but maybe my fault. And he didn't talk to me for weeks until he was compelled to reach out by a friend. Now he misses me. I hate this. I thought we were moving on. I know this shouldn't be complicated, but I overthink everything when it comes to my own problems. Well, don't we all love? Oh, what do you think? Can I just preface this question um, by asking Edson a question, yeah. which is how do, you, how do you feel about being lumped into the um, dear old queens? Oh, oh I'm yes. good with that. Good. <laughs> Sorry, yes. I, di I, I, didn't, I didn't ask your permission to be in the old queen <laughs> pantheon. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, um, I kind of think that's a really poignant one. Because I initially, when you first read the, the 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 response, I just had this thought and said, "Look, sometimes you've got to imagine what the person's doing when they're contacting you out the blue." Mm. 
Mm. And imagine that with the online world, they're talking to 10 people and they're finding out who's free. And so you might still have a strong attachment and then they might have sort of opened nine rooms and you're the room that's open. And it just like put it into perspective and it's not maybe as grand as it was, but maybe there is more of an emotional connection. But if it's not, it sounds like they just need to do that old school thing of either working out new parameters about what their relationship is and not trying to turn it into something it's not. Or I um, just think go cold turkey and don't do it. Um, and it's really easier said than done. But if there's a lot of pain there and you're one person feeling one, one thing and then the other person's not, but it's an interesting thing that if you're preoccupying your mental life with someone that you know isn't right for you, then uh, it, the story's not really about them. It's about you. Yeah. You know, and it's just think what else is going on for them. That means that they're not finding some other kind of, yeah, find out who is right for them and put this down. Or, and they'll find it easy to put it down. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. This is a call coming in from an ex. <laughs> right on cue. <laughs> I miss I'm you, Edson. I'm on a call. Um, Sorry. <laughs> that's all right. I, th- I think you're right. I think if this guy is, you know, if they've already been down this road a couple of times and it didn't work out, I, I think, you know, third time's not a charm always. Uh, or the fourth time, or the fifth time. I've been there myself. You know, I think it, if it's not working, it's not working. But I think you can respond to him, but still make it quite clear what the parameters are if they're going to be friends. And sometimes you do have to be quite hard with that. Um, there needs to be a bit of tough love there going, yeah, I do I do want us to have a relationship, but I don't want us to be boyfriends. So you saying you miss me is is okay, but we can be friends, but it's not going to be sex again. And that's the missing thing in the story. I mean, and that point you'll be honest with yourself and say, actually, the reason why I said yes is that I miss the sex with them. Like, the reason why they contacted me is I miss the sex with them. Yeah. Um, and at least then you can be clear with you and honest with yourself and not get your head tangled up. Um, but there's some kind of clarification needs to be done. Yeah, definitely. What do you think, Tommy? Well, yeah, I sort of just agree, really. Like, I think that, um, yeah, just agree. Sorry. Nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing more to add here. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Ignore the text from the ex or um, talk to somebody else who's going to be your next ex. Um. I think that you could, put it in, you could put it into context with what's happening at the moment, you know, with the world. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, people that I've seen that I really miss because they're being... Well, because we can't see everyone or we can't see everyone in how we'd like to see them, right? Um, and so I have sent people, I guess I've sent the people versions of that text. Yeah, but the, I think that's a different, I think it might be a different matter. I mean, it's just trying to make contact in, yeah. you know, in, in quarantine and making sure everyone's all right. Um, and you probably do still have feelings for that person because you had feelings before but um yeah i think it's quite clear you need to be clear with yourself and them about what those feelings are and whether this is going to turn into another go at a relationship or not or whether it's just going to be a friendship i mean it's quite interesting that i had lots of text messages from exes you know whilst when covid started just because i guess people were just checking in but it's quite hard to read what if there's another agenda going on there we're working out and they want to lock down with Tom. yeah yeah, maybe people are working out. Who am I going to live? Um, and if I get ill, who will I um, 
who will who will look who's kind enough and empathic enough to look after me and when I'm better have sex with me. That's what <laughs> <laughs> that's what we all want, right? Anyway, let's move on. Uh, final question. Dear old Queens, is Facebook, Messenger and the rest of social media hurting your relationships? Okay, my boyfriend is on Facebook and Messenger way too much for my liking. He's always glued to the phone or tablet. Do we just have to accept this now? Has it gotten to the point where everyone but me is addicted to these things? Please tell me this is not so. Um, Have you had this relationship problem yourself because of Facebook or Messenger and the green dot on the phone? What's the green dot on the phone? Um, well, Android's phones, um, I think it's, there's like a green dot on the app, uh, which tells you you've got a message. Yeah. So I think that's what he means by that. Okay. What do you think, Tommy? Uh, is everybody so social media up that it's affecting yeah, relationships and friendships and whatever? I mean, I live on my own and I'm obsessed with my phone and I look at it all the time and quite often respond to things probably sooner than I need to. So... I think I'm probably not in the best position to answer this question because I'm not in that situation, but I do, I do look at my phone too much. I know that. Well, I mean, we've all been in lockdown, haven't we? I think it's uh, the phone and social media has been the only outlet for some people, especially for me and you, Tommy, because we live on our own. You know, there hasn't been anybody else to talk to. So, Mm. you know, Zoom, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Grinder, uh, Scruff, you know, all of those things have been there to actually interact with people. I mean, I've gone so far that I've actually made a periodic table of it, of those different types of communications, because I just went off on one. <laughs> but well, isn't that isn't that being featured in a magazine? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, but not till, not out till September. Okay, so we can't mm. we can't reveal a picture of it just yet. What about you, Edson? What's your take on this? I think being present is really important. I mean, what is the phone and what is the whole social media? I think it's like a portal and it's a portal to like lots of different worlds and lots of different conversations. So if you're with someone and you've got all that non-verbal communication going on, their presence means like, oh, I think they'll talk to me. But what they've got in their device is the universe Mm. and managing multiple conversations. I mean, I would kind of think that it can it is just addictive and i think tom probably you know marcus gilroy Ware. he wrote this lovely book about the how social media works and how it creates little bits of stimulus all the time so it keeps you looking at it and scrolling and seeing if you get likes they're like little crumbs yeah little crumbs (laughs) and it's yeah it's just you get a little hit each time and and so so for me i see like in two ways that um Either the person has just got a bit of a internet, a social media addiction, and they are aware how much they are, or they are they are trying to find space. They're trying to get some space, mm. and the social media is their space. And maybe if they need space, they, it sounds to me like it's something to just they should just talk through. And I've been there, and and also when you've got like a different, you know, it's like I'm not being present, and sometimes it's because I'm not. I'm always working. And I, I administer like five or six different uh, groups. So I'm not meaning to be rude to the person whose company I'm in with, but I've noticed there's something I want to tweet or something I want to share or something I want to like. And I think there is a thing about having some ground rules when you're in company yeah. about how much we do. 
how much we use. But if it's about space and that the partner just needs like, you know what, I need I need a bit of time. They just agree that and there's other ways, healthier ways to do that. And be, be present when you're present and when you're not present, you know yeah i mean i feel that this problem is a symptom of lockdown and i feel like they probably spent too much time together and i think you're right i think the the partner is just wanting to get some space and um and i mean you can't be with one person 24 7 and and still be able to have a conversation with them and still have have a proper relationship with them they can't be the be all and end all i get it if they're doing it all the bloody time uh and you're being ignored and you but again, I think you're right. I think there should be some parameters or or the partner should be realizing what's happening what's happening there in their relationship. You know, it can't he can't just be on social media all the time. He does need to be present for his partner. But equally I, I think you you know, you you can have that space. You know, social media it's part of it's part of our lives now. We are gonna use it and and sometimes it's brilliant i mean for me and you tommy it's probably been our only outlet to contact people during lockdown especially mm. when you you couldn't see anyone it could be that they could involve that person their partner in in their mm. you know look at this picture like what do you think about this tweet yeah um, you know that sort of thing actually that's a really good point what if there are things that they're interested in that they don't feel they can share yeah you know, it's like it's that whole thing of you know, we always do that stuff of like trying to meet the other person and sometimes we meet them and we just hide or they're not that interested in 10% of us and so we have a space for that somewhere else and if you're locked together you don't have any space for those weird things that you're interested in that your partner goes rolls their eyes at um, but I guess if they, you're actually there's lots of ways that you don't meet social media is going to become even more important for you to try and find where those other interests and passions get fed, isn't it? Yeah, true. And also, if they're looking at our social media, that's absolutely fine. So uh, please like, share and subscribe. (laughs) 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 This podcast. (laughs) And um, just get on with it. (laughs) Anyway, on that note... anyway on that note i think we've come to the end of our episode thank you edson for being our guest this episode it's been wonderful having you here thank you for inviting me it's been great and uh sorry if i talk too much oh not at all not at all we invited you edson yeah it's it's given Uh, given us an episode off and you 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 sang (laughs) you sang beautifully i mean that's amazing i wasn't expecting that i love it um so say goodbye to our lovely listeners edson so bye everyone and uh, I hope I find you in the purple rain. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Tell me, say goodbye. 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 Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next time on What That Old Queen. have been listening to what that old queen written and presented by tom marshman and bernie hodges the show was produced by bernie hodges in lockdown 2020 for hodge podcasting if you'd like to sponsor a show or you'd just like to be a guest or you have a question for the old queens 
you can email on hello at thatoldqueen.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.